This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. Design is a business, and like any business, management is key. How do you juggle all the daily tasks required to keep your firm going? From setting up meetings with clients and vendors, issuing purchase orders, shopping for furnishings and fabrics, keeping up with invoicing and bill payments, hiring, firing, and training. What are the best practices, the systems, the software, the staffing and consultants, and the ever-important human factors that will allow your team to work at its optimum level so that creativity and your clients' needs never get shortchanged? I'm fortunate to have with me three designers who have evolved efficient, very personal methods for keeping their offices functioning smoothly as they have grown, evolved, and created outstanding interiors. First up is New York designer Ellen Hamilton, who for more than three decades has brought fresh energy to classic design, whether she's working on a horse farm outside Philadelphia, a beach cottage in Martha's Vineyard, or a Brooklyn Heights townhouse. Hello, Ellen. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here. From Nashville, we have Lori Paranjape, who actually began her career in television news before transitioning to design when so many friends asked her for help after seeing her own home. She's now a member of a design collective in Nashville and recently launched her own line of wallpapers. Welcome, Lori. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here. And finally, I'm pleased to welcome Sandra Funk, whose New Jersey and New York-based firm House of Funk has for more than two decades created clean lines, serene, and sophisticated rooms for clients on the East Coast. And Sandra is so aware of how complicated and time-consuming business management can be, she has created her own program, Interior Design Standard, to share with other designers her own hard-won wisdom about how to run a firm. Hello, Sandra. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here. So we're going to get into all of that. I want to hear about the collective. I want to hear about your program and all that. But I want to start out by asking each of you, and why don't we start with you, Ellen? I'd want to know a two-part question, and they could have the same answer, might have a very different answer. What, is, what do you think is the biggest challenge you face running your firm day-to-day, and what part of your job do you hate the most? Ellen, let's go with you. I would say creating structure in an area of work that is essentially unstructured, And there are so many disparate ways that as a designer, you have to come to your practice. So you have to wear the hat of being kind of a genius and a clerk at the same time. And the real challenge is kind of bringing art to all of that and creating discipline around it. When you go into the office, what do you groan when you see, oh, I have to do that today? Probably billing. (laughs) Doing timesheets and billing, not fun. Okay. Because, I mean, like, as you were saying, you're supposed to be creative, but you're also running a business. So, Lord, what about you? Same question. I think the greatest challenge in running my business day to day is working on how I communicate with clients so they understand an expectation and managing those expectations for my clients. Those, I call it my game (laughs) and and how my game develops over time. It has been the biggest difference. It has not been my design sense. It has not been my taste. It has been my game. That so I've it's communicating, on. really. 
getting? Absolutely. They've never done this before. Typically my clients are very young and this is their first time with a designer. They're in their twenties and thirties. They do not know how this goes. And I do. So I need to be the one to, to communicate that to them. The thing that I don't care for in my day-to-day, fortunately, I've had an opportunity to hire and have a team who can take care of this, some of the things that are not, not my strengths. But I, I guess I would have to say that my, my least favorite thing to do is reselect. What does that mean? I don't even know what that is. Reselections in design. So we do the presentation, we're excited, we're ready to roll, and a client asks for a pivot. And oh, we have so okay. much momentum moving forward with our business that, that having to do reselects is sometimes hurts my feelings almost because I was ready to do what we had presented. I could see that. I could see that. Sandra, what about you? So I think the least exciting part of design for me is managing the feast and famine that kind of everything is so overwhelming or the minute I am not stressed beyond belief with workload, I'm freaking out that I'll never sign another client again. The phone will never ring. Yes, it's it's a freelance life. (laughs) Yeah, it's an emotional roller coaster. It is a freelance life. It is. It's it's a job. It's a one job at a time and you work yourself out of a job every time you complete a project. And so that that just like roller coaster emotionally is hard on designers. The thing that I just hate is those little nitpicky punch list details at the very end of a project, they are the very first thing I make sure that someone else on the team is in charge of. Just running around with like, there's a teeny tiny chip with, if you lay on your back with a microscope is underneath this coffee table. I know we have to be absolutely there for that and we have to care and we have to fix it. But I just just want to rip my hair out when I get the microscope call. So I I can relate to that. Sandra, we call those scraps, that it's time to do the scraps. And we have to have somebody who's in charge of scraps, who loves scraps, who wants to handle every scrap and is going to handle every scrap with great excellence, because that's really where it can also kind of fall apart. Oh, yeah, because that's that final bit, right? So if you don't show up and care about that teeny nick with the microscope, we have to be laying on your back just as much as they do. That's the last interaction it, with the it's client. It's the pee under the mattress, you know? It it's is. that little thing that irritates so much. It you is. Know? And my husband always says to me, don't think you're going to go out there and do A-list design work for non-type A people, right? right? They're going to be the princesses that care about the pee. That's right. who we cater to. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Now, Ellen, like you had mentioned billing, you hate doing that. So I, I want to get a sense of what services you guys use besides your team? I'd love to know what you apportion to your teams and how, how big your teams are. But also, like, do you have an accountant that's an outside person? Do you have an office manager? How, how does it work every day when you have to get the billing done? You have to get your purchase orders out. How does that work? Ellen, let's start with you. We're a small firm. We're four people. And everyone sort small. of wears many hats. So I like to think of us as a very horizontal organization which means that we have very high skill sets. And then we, at the same time, we have to be very good at what anyone would think of as a kind of a low skill set, you know, double checking that you've added the numbers correctly and you're not reversing the product numbers and so on. So we all work in this very horizontal way, which is over the years, I've found that building my office in a horizontal rather than a vertical faction 
as a small office gives us the most versatility. So everyone is pretty senior. Everyone is senior. We don't have any juniors. And I like to think of this as a a first violin section of an orchestra, you know, where everybody's Mm -hmm. just playing their absolute best all day long. And And anybody can switch in and and take over anything. Anybody can switch in and take over. Everybody's the boss, really, except when it comes down to, you know, final design direction. Right. So, and over the years, I've just found that that kind of an office really supports my vision for what design is and my personality to work in this very horizontal, super team-driven way where everybody's equal, as equal as we can be. Right. And Laurie, how, how about your team? And what service, outside services do you use? Well, I, I have an accountant who handles all of the payroll and our books and taxes and all of that. I have a team of four as well, like Ellen does, but the collective that we mentioned in the beginning is what makes my business exceptionally different from almost every other design firm. And, and that is that I have a retail partner. So my design business does not handle any invoicing any tracking, any damages, any returns, any anything. So we specify it in a spreadsheet, send it over, and then we don't touch it again until we install it, unless we need a reselection. So um, it's very different. So my team would be significantly larger if if you I handled that. that. So how did that work out that you you hooked up with this retail organization? So I started, I was kind of like an in-house designer for a furniture boutique in town and my business began to take off and and we sort of decided to organically grow together and and see how we could maintain a win-win for both of us running our own businesses that were just right side by side, yet not financially connected necessarily. And it has become now 12 years later where I have multi-million dollar projects and multi-million dollar furnishing projects. And she owns the boutique where I source all of my furnishings. I'm the buyer for her boutique. So anything we would like access to, any line we'd like to open with, oh, here's a cool something. And then they open that account for me. And so we can make purchases and I commission at the end of my projects. You're a busy gal. I'm a busy gal. I am a busy gal. Yes, I am. That's an interesting way to approach doing design because it kind of gives you almost a cushion in a way. It's the only way I've ever done it. So I have a hard time speaking to the other side of it, except Mm -hmm. that I know in conversations, even talking with Sandra and talking with other designers that most designers spend half of their time on invoicing. Mm -hmm. So I spend a hundred percent of my time on design and relationships and 0% of my time on invoicing. So I do feel like what we're able to be productive in is, is different from a firm that's doing that from within, since that's a separate entity for us. Right. And it's not limiting in a sense, because this partner that you have, what's the name of the, of the retailer? I've- Redo Home and Design. And they're based here in Nashville. In Nashville, right. But you don't feel that working with them constrains you in any way, because she's willing to work with you to get what you need or want? We've been going to market together for, for 12 years. There's there's nothing that, there's no account she wouldn't open or no relationship that she wouldn't develop. Um, it's it's mutually financially beneficial. So there would be no reason for her to say, oh, no, I don't want to do business with them because the only reason I'm asking is because I'd like to sell it. Right, right. And now, Sandra, you, you've been working a long time and you've learned a lot, obviously, through the years. And I know that one of the things we talked about this was you had started this new thing 
I don't even know what to call it, a program, I guess, that you make available to other designers so that they don't have to do 100% of their time doing invoicing. Just tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So I started the Interior Design Standard, which is the back end of my business, basically as a template for other designers to purchase and take the program and kind of go through the program. And while it all threads together, it also allows them to go, okay, yeah, I do that. Or, oh, I could up my game here, you know, however that is. It's, it's a really great we kind of thought it was going to be really for new designers or younger designers, people that were going out on their own. And I have had 40-year veterans purchase the course from a standpoint of they're using it to document their processes as like a catapult because they right. know they need to do it for the long term of transitioning their business to the next generation or for sale or whatever it was. But kind of mind blown at that, at the range of who's purchasing the standard. But the idea is that we spent 20 years slamming our head against the wall and it seems silly to have right. figured it all out and not share it with the rest of the industry. It's obviously why we're doing things like this as well. Right. Now, I want to get a sense from all of you. Are there, you know, computer programs? I don't even know what to call them. Apps, I don't know what, you know, that you use to help you on a day-to-day basis to do certain tasks. I, I'd love to know what those are. I mean, we did a episode a couple of weeks ago and um, Katie Curtis was mentioning she uses Flowdesk to help her do all her emailing and stuff like that. So I'd love to, because I think that'd be so helpful to other designers to say, what what are your favorite programs and what you use to help you on a day, you know, every day to get those annoying things that you need to do from purchase orders to whatever to get done. So Lori, what about you? Let's start with you. We use Ivy to invoice design time and track and communicate with clients that way. On the retail side of things and the purchasing side, we also use Ivy and that's how, how clients pay for their invoicing. Internally with my team, we use Google Drive, doc, just documents to organize and keep pages of main floor furnishings, main floor accessories, main floor rugs, main floor wallpaper, main fl- and it's all tidy. So you can just click the tab and find out all of the items that are in those so There's the way you share it internally. That's correct. That's correct. And then when we're ready to invoice, we share that same document and then they create an invoice using that document. So it updates in real time. It's a very simple tool, but it updates in real time. So no one is using old information, which is amazing, right? Yes. The smaller the team, the harder it is to communicate. I know that from experience, you know. The last one we use is Asana for organization. What's that again? I never heard of that. Asana. Asana is a project management tool. So my project manager can assign tasks and then you can check it off that I completed it. And, oh, remember you needed to pick a fabric for that, pick a fabric and I hit check. So everyone knows that things are being taken care of in Asana. Right. Alan, it sounds like you use that as well. Yeah, we use Asana for task management, Excel, and but a real engine for our business is Design Manager. It's been around a long time and it kind of does everything that Mm -hmm. we need it to do. Sandra, what about you? I am obsessed with Asana. It is actually the platform that we built our uh, program on, and it's kind of all templated. So everything that we do in our business is thought through and refined and then duplicated. So every project has follows the exact same workflow every single time, and you can pre-assign and you can pre clarify all these details and it can link out to all the Google Drive docs and everything else. So obsessed. We also do our shopping and our sourcing in Wakora. 
It's got a great little product clipper and it allows you to, I deliver my online design directly through Wakora. And I also use it internally to shop projects for full service where we're doing those presentations in person. Designer Link is our, like our Ivy or our design manager. It's how we do our proposals, invoicing, all of that. And then my accounting is done by their sister firm, Designer Advantage. And so they handle all the bookkeeping, all the purchasing, all the follow-up on all those things. They do our freight consolidation. And so similar, I think, but not the same, Lori, we we hand off an order to them and we don't think about it again, aside from reading our weekly report until it's at our receiver. So it really helps move that along because that's a huge chunk of the business that you can get down a rabbit hole with details. Ellen, I think I cut you off, but are there other programs that you use in terms of like invoicing and shipping, which is a huge issue? We really just use Design Manager and it's interesting listening to Sandra and Lori because both of you have sort of outsource that and we must be terribly old school we're still doing it in-house and now i'm listening to you and thinking that sounds good really well good. good that sounds okay really so now good. i'm listening to this and i'm thinking oh well with all these programs that you guys have and all these daily annoying tasks that you used to have to hire young staff to do or outside people <laughs> so this must mean that you're sitting around in your offices all day long with your team going through <laughs> fabric swatches and books Smoking on Billy Baldwin and instructing your team and being creative and <laughs> right. I mean, it's a no. Oh yeah. yeah smoking yeah. cigarettes. Right. Okay. All right. I guess that's not, but it sounds that way. It sounds like a lot of this stuff is automated. So I mean, I know it's an issue and this was an issue way pre COVID. I heard from many designers that they could not get their younger staff, to go to showrooms, to go to fabric houses. They wanted to do everything online. And I'm sure COVID has exacerbated that greatly. So how do you deal with sourcing and finding new things? I mean, obviously every designer has their fabric library that they use their favorite things that they love to use, whatever. But you know, everybody wants something new. Everybody wants it to be different. You want your work to stand out. Let's, let's start with you, Ellen. Well, pre-COVID, I was a huge fan of travel overseas at least mm -hmm. two to three times a year, as, as much as I humanly could. And when I can, taking people from the office with me, because if they can't feel it, they don't know what they're right. missing, you know? So, I mean, COVID, I think, has, if nothing else, just increased that appetite. We don't, because we're here in New York, we don't keep samples in the office. I absolutely mm -hmm. refuse. Interesting. It forces everybody out, even for a white mm -hmm. subway tile. We're right here in Union Square. Waterworks is two blocks away. Ansacks, just take a walk two blocks. You might see something that you didn't know that you were going to go. So for me, shopping is absolutely mandatory. And I do that by having no library. Um, the only thing I have in my library is Fantastic. books. Fantastic. And they have required reading. Yeah, well, you can require, <laughs> but do they do it? That's reading. the other question. But well, not always. You, you can suss it out if they don't. Believe me, I know. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sandra, what about you in, in terms of your team or even yourself finding time to get out and see things? I mean, obviously, it's more complicated than it used to be, but the vaccine's on the horizon. Thank yes. God, knock wood. Thank goodness. I think it's so for us, it's about curating a library. Was we were in the greater New York area. And so we were out in a studio based in New Jersey. So we had a really curated library there. That was our day-to-day -day source. And that was curated by me. You know, that I really think of that as like my design director role is to make sure that there's nothing in that library that I wouldn't be thrilled to see come into a project. 
And then it's about hopping on that train and getting into the city and getting all the feels and being out in the world. How I make sure that I don't have people that are just sitting on the internet is I make sure I drag my team to high point whenever I can. It really lights a fire under them to see just how humongous our industry is as far as sourcing and as far as what's out there. So that gets our juices flowing and I try to go as often as I can. So right now we are sitting tight, but just trying to trying to keep the fires going for sure. Yeah. Has it been harder for you guys to find new products and find out about things during this? I know a lot of fabric houses do you know, online tutorials or it's a big issue. Do you think, how, how successful do you think that's been during the pandemic? I don't think it's been terribly successful. I think that for me, it's sort of, it was the worst of what existed before. And, you know, I'm trying to get excited this week about design Miami. I'm trying to get Mm -hmm. excited about salon and, you know, it's just not the same thing. Like I'm really trying, but I can't. So that doesn't mean that we don't buy and that we're not constantly shopping. We do. We have to get the work done. But it's very disappointing. It hasn't, you know, I think that what I'm interested in now is trying to find pickers. I think it's back to the old days of pickers and I need to find somebody. If anybody knows, email me. I need someone in Italy and someone in Paris. I I just, I don't know pickers anymore. Do they even exist? Do you know, Michael? Well, I think what happened is that a lot of online sites like Cherish, people now put that stuff on Cherish as opposed to selling it to dealers or directly to designers. So I'm sure there still are people out there. But again, this is another way that Internet has changed the whole design field. Hi, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the Cherish podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I am the co-founder and president of Cherish. Professional designers are invited to join the Cherish Trade Program to access special benefits like net pricing and a special trade-only customer service hotline. New this year, we're also introducing a loyalty program where designers earn $75 in cash for every $5,000 they spend on Cherish. We do hope you'll join us. And in order to do so, please visit cherish.com backslash trade. That's spelled C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H dot com backslash trade. And now back to the show. So, Lori, what about you? How do you feel about your team, your, you getting out there? How, do, how does it work these days? Well, I, I think what is so interesting listening to, to Ellen and Sandra, I do all of the things they do. We go to High Point every time we can. We travel when we can. We are exposed to as much as we can. But I don't know if it's because of my younger clientele or if it's just because of my team or, or who we are. We gather so much information from Instagram and social media that there are these small boutique fabric firms and there is a someone sewing pillows with the most exquisite fabrics or there's an artisan in on the Ivory Coast who is doing something and somehow through this network on social media we can find these incredible people where I'm not seeing it everywhere I mean, now we use all of the brands. We we do all of that. We had an in-person Portotelio brought their latest and greatest in and we bought it on the spot and we're using it on a project and we're still getting some of that from the brands. But being able to buy directly from these makers and going to these small business minority-owned businesses have I've 
learned a lot this year about what I was not doing as the the person who was stewarding fortunes of interiors, you know, budgets. And this year I learned a lot about that. And I have been a better steward of how to allocate those budgets to women-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses, businesses that have a heart, all sorts of different different ways that I can be a better steward for those budgets. But using social media to do that has, I mean, it's inexhaustible. There's not a day that goes by that my team and I don't exchange an account that says, look at these handmade tiles. These are amazing. We should right. use those in the basement right. in that mountain home. And that's right. how we're gaining new information every day. Fantastic. I mean, it's a fascinating, we all complain about, at least I do, but I think we all complain about social media. Oh, we can't keep up. We have to post, you know, because that's another thing we can talk about is brand building via social media and all, but it is an amazing resource and it has brought attention to smaller artisans, makers, all that stuff. And I think that's such a, a, people, we forget about that, but I think that's such an important thing that social media has brought to light. But I also want to ask you, and this also relates to social media too, because as you know, not only do you guys now have to create these rooms, buy these things, invoice, do your staffing, cover your nut every month, but you also now are your own publicist and your own publications in a way, you know, you post stuff on Instagram. So I want to talk to you about photography and photography rights, because I think that's another area that can become an issue. And I know as an editor, even in online and some other projects I've worked on, it can be a point of contention, shall we say. So how do you handle in terms of documenting your projects and making sure that you have all the rights you need and all of that? How much time does that take? How do you do that? Do you work with a service? Do you work with one photographer? How do you approach that? I Ellen, let's start with you. I have always sort of done my own photo shoots and produced them. I like what you guys do so much. I thought I would try it myself. So I hire the photographer. I hire a stylist. I work with the stylist. I often use the stylist to help me finish a job because I'm kind of exhausted by the time I get to the ashtrays and the planners. I'm like, oh, God, help me. Somebody just do it. And so I have historically owned my photographs. And most of the work that I have had published has been sort of camera ready. It's that the magazines take it. And I just like doing it. I like producing my own stuff and then I own it. As a result, I don't do it enough because I make, you know, a huge Cecil B. DeMille production out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be very time consuming, as I well, well know. It's like a business, right? right? So I do love doing it. I really love it. But I'm trying to find a way to be a little more casual about it. But I, I think owning your own photographs for me has always been important. Mm-hmm. And then if a magazine reshoots it or somebody else wants to reshoot it, it's you, fine. You've but got I, it. You've but I own it. it. Right. Yep. So So I've never done it any other way. Right. What about you, Sandra? I've never done it any other way either. It was always find a good photographer. And then I dabbled with a stylist once. It turned out amazing the first time, a train wreck the second time. And I've been styling my own (laughs) jobs ever since. (laughs) One person's hangover is not going to ruin my photo shoot. Right. right? Um, Oh, God. uh Yeah. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, having, you know, finding that great photographer that you, you know, you have, this is where we stretch our budgets, right? It's worth its weight Mm -hmm. in gold, but getting the jobs photographed is so, so important to me, even if I don't know where they're going or how I'm going to use them. And there was this moment where 
I was so sick of, no offense, Michael, I was so sick of my work sitting on an editor's desk for literally years that- That never happened know, with not me. you, darling. <laughs> um, but we started self-publishing. We just decided that right. we can toot our own horn and mm-hmm. we can make our own noise. And- Well, Instagram has totally transformed that too. And Pinterest, you know. And we love our magazines, don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But there are times we choose, you know, some projects we send off for press and some projects we self-promote and self-publish. Yes, because even if the project's accepted, it could be six months, a year before it actually sees the light of day. So it's a consideration. And I think the magazines are all much more aware of that now. Lori, what about you? Because you've been published several times in magazines as well and, and Instagram. I have been paying to shoot my projects probably for six or seven years now, paying high level photographers to take photos of all of my projects, not knowing, just like Sandra and Ellen, not knowing where they're going to end up. I kind of, you know, waffle a little bit each way. Do I want to foot the bill for the photographer? Do I want to foot the bill for the stylist? Do I want to do that and then submit to a magazine and then they publish it as is? Or do I want to shoot iPhone scouts? in order to entice a magazine to come in and shoot the images for me. And that's a tightrope that I walk every time. It is a frustration. The waiting is a frustration because that's how we get new businesses to show what we have done. So when something is embargoed for a long time, it can really be kind of detrimental because that's what we've been busy doing and we can't show any new product. When I release a new project onto Instagram, And whether it's in concert with a magazine releasing it or an online outlet releasing it, that's when I get design inquiries. There's a hundred percent tie to those two things happening at the same time. That doesn't surprise me. And for me, I had a terrible situation with a photographer who I didn't understand the contract. I didn't know how those, my images could be used and they were edited, they were sold, they were used in a way that I could never have dreamed of. And I've heard so many people that this has happened to. And and it can be a really tricky field to navigate. And, and I, as a designer now, bring a photography contract to my relationships. Right. So I can prevent that from happening. Well, this is another outside service I'm sure you all use as a lawyer, you know, and this is something that we sort of skimmed over this, but I think you all have design contracts that you give to clients and contracts with photographers, all of that. So I guess this is something that we assume it's done, but I think a lot of people, especially those starting out, aren't as aware of it. And contracts can be really varied and some can be loose and some can be tight. And it's a it's an issue because you don't want to present your clients who are going to pay you with this 38-page you know, you can't move the ashtray kind of contract, but at the same time, you have to protect your interests. So I think that's something. So I'm assuming you (laughs) all have good lawyers. At least our lawyers. Or at least lawyers you think are good. I don't know. (laughs) Ellen is hesitating. (laughs) Unfortunately, I'm sure mine's good. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. But I do think that that's something that, you know, people have to think about that. And Ellen and I were talking about this Uh, Two is the reason that you want to streamline your office operations and get your team working collaboratively and in sync and everything is so that you will have time to do your main job because that I'm sure on certain days gets totally shunted aside because you have all these pressing deadlines. But, you know, being creative and talking with clients because I'm sure more than ever, your clients are looking to you 
for ideas and reassurance. So, Ellen, we were talking about this. So let's start with you. How, how do you make sure that that doesn't get lost, the human element? You know, it's great to have all these programs, but. I always say I have a very non-commercial practice, and in a sense, I do. I have clients now that I've been working with over 20 years, and I've done multiple homes, and they become my family. And I think I told you when we were chatting that I, I was trying to find this quote, so if Rose Tarlow ever hears this, forgive me for making it up. But I thought that she said one time is that, you know, she loves all of her clients and that, it, and, and, and what she really meant, I think, was that she wants to be close to them so she can do her best work and that she can make things as beautiful as possible. And, and I think, you know, there's an interesting element, you know, why I was making those funny faces about lawyers is because really our clients have to trust us and we have to trust our clients. And I had uh, a client many years ago at the beginning of my career who was a very well-known New York judge. And she said to me, you know, Ellen, the best contract is no contract. And I think about that a lot because I think it really dovetails with that human element of being wanting to be close with our clients and being able to give them our best and for them to trust us and for us to trust them. And sure, you need a contract, but no contract can protect you. In my experience, I'm speaking solely for myself, of something that's going to happen if trust becomes right. broken. So the most important thing every day is to be credible, to create trust and to do that by loving what you do and giving the art and the soul to what you do so that they know that you're 100% there. And then maybe you don't need a contract. Well, I mean, that is all great. But, you know, we live in a litigious society. And as we know, some of the biggest names in the design industry have been sued by clients know, and sometimes on more than one occasion. So it's like you were saying, it's a balance. You know, that's what you, you know. It is a you balance. Know, how, do you do, how do you work that out? Sandra, how do, you, how do you deal with your clients in terms of that? And how do you t teach your team, your staff, so that they understand the importance of that and they can deal with your, your clients? So I think you're absolutely right that it is about showing up and it's about being personal with them. But I also, years ago, I had a client who was going to take the design and run and wanted, from what I understand, it was not, I was not the first person they did it to, but they were going to take the design and run. And you mean steal? Yes, they steal were threaten nice. to sue, make it, you know, public, make it noisy. And of course, we end up saying, take the design, goodbye, you're, we're done, you know, we're out of here. At that time, I went back with my lawyer, a business strategist, a coach, like kind of more of a mentor around, you know, this stuff about just like broke my heart to have someone take like that. And we sat down and wrote, a beautiful contract that it taught it's more of a here's what it looks like to work with house of funk here's what the timeline looks like here's what the deliverables look like here's what you can expect from us here's what gets us excited and you know we can't wait to do this design with you so while it's a contract it's also this kind of manifesto of of design and what this is going to be like and of course there's the you know legalese section that's like you know force majeure and blah 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 but we rewrote it so that it was just, it, it's about kindness and clarity and, and our excitement and, and that we are doing something that we love in a loving way. And I think 
I also, I say it out loud to them. I kind of have a presentation that I go through with our clients. I make sure I am talking to them and looking them in the eyes and going through payment terms and how this is going to happen and when this is going to happen. And then I have them, you know, send it to them in writing so that they can sit with it. If they, so if they learn via a conversation, if they need to hear it, if they need to see it, because it's really like Lori was saying earlier and Ellen, you know, talking about trust and setting expectations and communicating those are the lessons that you learn over and over and over again. And, you know, you, you, they keep coming up over and over and it is that detail and that level of clarity and communication that I think puts us back to where we want to be. We want to be making beautiful spaces that make our soul sing. And Lori, you were saying that a lot, obviously a lot of your clients are younger and they've never done this before. And I was on a panel once with Anna Brockway and she raised a very good point. She was saying to a lot of these designers around the table, you guys don't understand what it's like to be on the other end. You're coming in and you're ripping your clients' houses apart. You're putting, you know, making everything for six months of chaos. Meanwhile, they're writing out big checks to you. And she said, it, it's a very traumatic experience. And I would think, Lori, with your clients being younger and never having done this before, that would be extremely so. So how do you reassure them? How do you get them to sign off on the dotted line? How do you get them to write the, the checks to pay your bills? Well, I have been told that I do a reverse sale for one thing. So the, the beginning first, I get a design inquiry. It comes from Instagram. They've been following me on Instagram. They're ready to build their house. And I'd like to know how this works. And so we set up our very first phone call. And that first phone call is, it's crazy expensive to do this. It's this much more because I'll have to travel to come and see you. This is about what, when you look at my Instagram and you think that's so beautiful and that's what you're asking me to do, this is how much that costs. I don't know if you know, and this is how long it takes. And, and so I'm sort of front loading tons you of- You deliver the horror <laughs> right up front. In the very beginning. And they're like, how much is it? I'm like, it's so much. <laughs> <laughs> So much. <laughs> That's great. So That's when brilliant. we're already talking, like when we've already said the word a million dollars in phone call number one, we're understanding one another now because really that's why they called. That's why they wanted the phone call. They want to know how much it's going to cost. So right. I need to right. be really clear and upfront that if you want me to design your home for the next year and a half and you want me to furnish it from tip to tail and you want to be in that magazine, then this is about how much that costs. And as soon as they sort of choke that down, if they stay, then they're mine, right? Then we're clear. So I'm not introducing new information later on when they've signed on and I'm telling them new information about money because I think that is... It's beyond disrespectful. I think it's malpractice. I think yeah, we you need to entice them with some beautiful vision and then say, oh, there's no way you can. Yeah, that's right. That's that right. Sense. This is how much you're going to pay for me and my services. And this is how much I believe you'll need to invest in order to get to the result that you're asking me to give you. And if they're in, I have a one page, I call it an agreement. It's not a contract. It is a binding legal contract, but it is a design agreement. And it essentially says that, I'm offering you design advice and you can take it or leave it. There are professionals that are required to be in this relationship with us, structural engineers and architects and code inspect, you know, those things. I'm not doing that. Don't take my advice and build the house with no basement support, right? That's not what I'm doing. So I say that I say how we're going to break up. If we have to break up, this is how we terminate. So you owe me this much money or I keep this much money. 
and you get all the information that I've produced up to this point. I will send it to you immediately. And this is how it ends. And hopefully it ends amicably if it has to, but I want them. And that all is in the first 20 minutes of us making contact. Wow. And, and what percentage stay? all the I'm... things that we're going to do. So if they take all of that, because that's a heavy load, but I, but I think they're, I'm sure a lot of the clients are very relieved. Design is a very murky, mysterious thing to most people. Yeah, I could not agree more. And really, if I'm being honest, 95% of my design inquiries are, are a no. Right. So I retain a very small amount. We're working in, in the stratosphere, in the design world. And right. those numbers are heavy. So they need right. to know that if they're in right. though, then, then we get going. I just kind of get right. there faster. The right. further I get into my career, I get there a little bit faster and just tell, I used to say, Oh, I can, I can $10,000. I can't wait to design your whole house and it'll be amazing. Right. And I can oh. deliver <laughs> next week and I can't I'll make wait. It work. I'll and make it it'll work. be right. so wonderful. And I would over promise and under deliver every single time. And, right. and now I'm a reverse sell. I'm the other way. I'm the whole truth, nothing but the truth, all the way up front. It's as scary as hell. This it's so freaking expensive. It's all of these things. And if they stay, let's go. Cool. Right? Like free and clear. Let's go. Now we know what we're spending. Now you know how much I cost. And I'm sure that eliminates a lot of the more difficult people, you know, because difficult people like to play games and you're not playing a game here. You're being there's, very direct. There's no room for it. And, and process also, Sandra and I have talked about process in the past when we sat on a panel together, but my process is pretty hands on for me and hands off for my clients. So we present a design direction, which is usually a single sheet per space. The client signs off on that direction and then the client sees nothing else. So that's the end of my client's involvement. And then we handle it from there. So I say it may not be the side table. It may not be that rug. It may not be that light fixture, but this is the intent. Are we agreed on the right. intent? Yes. I'm like, great. I will see you in eight months and we will deliver it. That's asking for a lot of trust. That's a lot of yes, trust. I would say. It's a lot of trust. So and did, because we're doing that, they need to know. And what percentage of your clients call you during that eight months and just say, oh, checking in, I just want to make sure, you know? I shouldn't say that we don't communicate. We communicate all the time, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not running by the linen selection for the white linen right. drapery and asking them, do you want this white or this white? No, we're not going to talk about that. I'm going to handle all of that for you. But, you know, when we're doing an art collection and they want to see individual pieces or, you know, there are things that we talk about. We had to reselect lights for a new construction in Boston and so the client had to approve new lighting that had, it was very important lighting. And we did that together, but my process is not others process. If someone, if right. that sounds good to someone, then maybe I'm your designer. If you right. want to be a part of it and you want to pick out this linen or that linen, there's probably another designer who's better suited to work with you. That would make you happier. Yeah. Yeah. So I, okay. Now I have an interesting question for all three of you here. And then this has to do with process. I think we're all, you're all sort of, obviously you deal with clients differently, but you understand that this is really your primary thing. And this is what gives you the greatest pleasure is creating rooms for pe people that are going to love their homes. So what's the one element of your practice, New Year's resolution that you really want to work on in 2021 to make better? Assuming COVID by mid-year has not, not quite gone away, it's not quite as impactful on, but just... In general, what's the one element of your practice that you really want to 
think about, redo, make more efficient, abolish altogether, farm out? What would that be? Why don't we start with you, Sam? I think that the big thing for 2021 for me is getting someone in place in my firm that can handle the distribution of workload, the double check of things like transcribed numbers and making sure that the markups are <laughs> accurate and appropriate. I would like to move to the situation where I am a design director. I would like to be mm-hmm. the first and last eyeball on where this is headed and how this looks before it goes to presentation. I am the rainmaker. I'm the person who goes out there and meets the potential clients and, and signs them. So I'd like to move to a situation where I'm not that and in the weeds with the business management as much. That's my dream. That's a good resolution. What about you, Laura? I moved this year to a lot of what Sandra just described. So, you know, a lot heavy on the design intent and big picture, and then everything gets selected. I see it, I tweak it, send it back, and then I present to the client. On the business side of things, I do feel like the way that we've developed it is is successful for us. And it's working for us. This was the year of trust, which was Ellen's buzzword when she was talking. This was the year that I just said, I need to have trusting relationships with clients, period. That's all I want for my business. And I think for 2021, I'm going to double down on that and really make that part of my game that we talked about in the beginning. That first phone call, I need to say that my most successful projects, I promise you, the projects that are the most beautiful had the most trust. And that is how we get to the magic. Mm -hmm. If you just want me to pick stuff out for you, Mm -hmm. then we don't really have anything to work with because that's not really what I do for a living. But if you're looking for some magic, Mm -hmm. and if you're looking that I am your girl, (laughs) I am it, this is it, I am in, then we begin what is the most amazing outcomes of my career have been like that. So 2021 just says, let's take what we did in 2020 and really, you know, all caps trust. And that's where we're headed for next year. I have to say, Lori, for a reverse salesperson, you're a really good salesperson. (laughs) (laughs) I will hire you. You're brilliant. Keep going. Exactly. So Ellen, what about you? 2021, what what do you want to fix or expand or do less of? I'm at an odd place now where I feel like I fixed a lot of problems. And we do projects that take a long time. We're small, but we do complex. Mm-hmm. So any project has, from gestation to completion, a 36 to 48-month period. So, you know, I'm just going to focus on publishing and documenting and being... And that's just a change of headset from Mm -hmm. actually producing the work and being in a really deep production mode, which I have been for the past four or five years. So honestly, I don't, there's nothing other than I just want to enjoy what I've already done. And I'm in like a good place for the first time in a while. So I'm just going to go with it. Yeah, you. Great. <laughs> Terrific. Well, I want to thank all of you. I want to thank my guests, Lauren perron Sandra Funk, and Alan Hamilton. I so appreciate your sharing all this great business advice and creative advice as well with our audience. And thank you so much for being here. And thank you to everyone who listens to the Cherish Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Cherish Podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or even better, go to the iTunes store and post a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and edited by Max Solomon of Hanger Studios in New York. Until next time.